Hello, and welcome to the Warden Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Kiana Sani, and today we are joined by Amaya Scarity, partner at QED Investors. Amaya's joined QED as a partner in 2017, focusing on supporting the portfolio and finding new investment opportunities with a focus on back office technologies and infrastructure companies. Prior to joining QED, Amaya served as the president's nominee and as acting assistant secretary for financial institutions at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Warden Fintech's platinum sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation and Finance at Warden. The Stevens Center is the premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. You can learn more at stevenscenter.warden.upenn.edu. Amias, thank you so much for joining us on the Warden Fintech podcast today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you recently joined QED as a partner in 2017. Uh, most recently, prior to that, you served as the president's nominee and as acting assistant secretary for financial institutions at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Uh, can you share any interesting anecdotes about your experiences there um, and what your role was in Treasury? Yeah, sure. So I had a variety of different roles, and maybe I'll share uh, an anecdote from the very beginning of my time there when uh, I joined. I joined as one of, sort of 20 or so political appointees on the first day of the Obama administration, the wow. height of the financial crisis. And I was actually very early assigned to work on what became Dodd-Frank. So I was actually mostly holed up, not working on crisis response, but working on uh, you know what we would do after the crisis was over. And in the middle of March, uh, Geithner um, was, you know, getting under incredible political pressure because the AIG had paid $165 million worth of bonuses. And so naturally, uh, people on both sides, uh, both parties in Congress were calling on Geithner to resign because of this kind of, um, you know, travesty. And that's because AIG had just received... Yeah, hundreds of billions of dollars of, uh, of, of bailout money. And, um, you know, Geithner's view at the time was he didn't have the right to abrogate the contract. So these were duly uh, contracted, owed bonuses, and he couldn't ask the CEO of AIG not to pay them. So he was going to have to testify. And I was not working on this project at all. And Wednesday before the Tuesday testimony, I got called to the secretary's office at 8 p.m. And uh, they said, well, you can write, right? (laughs) I sort of said, I guess. And... uh, so for five days, I became the secretary's speechwriter, and he he had a very, you know, um, one of the things about Geithner is that he'll tell you what he wants, but it's not always that clear. So he said, I want to make three points, and then he would list five points. And he said, I just want to make sure we at least make these two really important points, and then he lists seven more. And so as a speechwriter, it was incredibly difficult, and over that weekend, my wife and I moved from Boston to D.C., so I was actually doing drafts of the testimony on Saturday on the New Jersey Turnpike riding shotgun in a U-Haul uh, with, my, with my wife uh, and all of, our ba- all of our belongings in the back. So that was, a, that was a fun time in the early days of Treasury. Wow, that's super interesting insight into the uh, machine that is the Treasury Department. So I'm curious, your background gives you a really great pulse on what's going on in the regulatory landscape. Um, what are the things in the regulatory landscape in the U.S. that interest you most? Where do you see the most evolution happening um, and where it's going? Yeah, look, I think there's a, a lot of interesting activity. I mean, one of the big controversies that's happening right now is this question of 
uh, how will a real-time faster payment network get built? Uh, obviously, the large banks through an entity called the Clearinghouse are already building a real-time payments network. And there's been an effort over many years under the Fed to have working groups on this question. And just recently, uh, the Fed came out and said that they would also build a faster payments or real-time payments network. And this has caused some consternation in the banking community, but I think is a, a really great step in the right in the right direction. I think that the U.S. needs real-time payments. Uh, we've already seen the, FC is, the FCA has gone there. Mexico is going there. India has going there. And I think that we don't know all the business models that are going to come out of real-time payments, but we do know that there's a lot of friction in the system because we don't have real-time payments. And I think it's good for the banks to build this, but I think it's also good uh, for the Fed to build this infrastructure. I think having a payment system is a really important part of having a strong national economy. And so it's in that way, it is a public good and should have both uh, public and private actors in it. So that that's one that's really interesting. I think that what the states are doing, you know, um, Utah, Arizona, others are, are trying to experiment with the question of uh, how do we encourage innovation and and what are the the dynamics that will bring that to our states? Uh, I think those are mostly economic development activities. And I think in that way, it's it's good for states to experiment with what it what does it take to build a vibrant ecosystem? You know, one of my friends is the mayor of Hartford and Hartford is a, a small city in the Northeast. It's where I grew up. And, you know, they're trying to create an insure tech accelerator and an advanced manufacturing accelerator. And I think it is, uh, you know, it's not clear which of these efforts will will succeed, but I think local, you know, states and, and cities and municipalities trying to find out how they can uh, support innovation and bring jobs and development, I think is a, a pretty positive dynamic and, and we'll see where it, where it goes. So earlier you were, we were talking separately and uh, you were telling me about how the uh, proliferation of data and data aggregation is really changing the compliance um, and regulatory landscape. I was wondering if you can tell our listeners a bit about what you were uh, speaking to our classmates at Warden about. Yeah, so I think one of the things that, that has happened, if you just zoom out, is that data storage is no longer expensive. Right. And because data storage is no longer expensive, you can build systems that record way more data than you used to. So one of our portfolio companies is a company called Arachnus. It's an anti-money laundering automation company. Okay. And if you think about the old approach to investigating uh, a potential customer from an anti-money laundering risk perspective, you would have had a person stare at a bunch of documents, type up some notes, and then those notes would go into a PDF file that then gets stored. Right. And the reason it was stored in a PDF file is because data storage was really expensive. And so you'd flatten a lot of the information, make it hard to search, make it hard to tell what documents the investigator had looked at because they would look at physical documents or printouts or screenshots or they'd Google. Um, but you couldn't actually capture the quality of the investigation. And so just taking this very simple insight that data storage is cheap, Arachnus is able to build an investigator tool where they can capture every single thing that an investigator does. That means that you can actually require, as a matter of the software, that your policies are adhered to, so that every analyst that does an investigation has to adhere to the policies. The second thing that you can do is you can actually store the data in a live way, so that if the data finds out that you and I are connected from a business perspective, a later search about you would reveal that I'm 
an affiliate, whereas that would never happen if we just were in the old storage of, of PDF. So I think what is really interesting to me is that this uh, data cheapness is enabling us to do different things from a data architecture perspective, which then enables new business processes. And uh, we don't really know where all of that goes, uh, but but the opportunities are, are pretty broad and, and pretty exciting. Yeah. I mean, from hearing that, it's clear that your experiences at Treasury have allowed you to gain a great expertise in financial markets, compliance, regulation technology, um, all of which you're bringing to QED. We're trying to. Right. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, what what drove your decision to move from the Treasury side to the private investment side in Metric Capital? Yeah, so I, I was a political appointee. So m- m- President Obama, on the way out, asks for the resignation of all political appointees across government. And, okay. and the, the standard for that is you can resign at any time, but it can be no later than noon on Inauguration Day okay. <laughs> um, for the next president. Right. And that is true regardless of party, actually. So uh, even if the Democrats had won, uh, Obama still would have re- re- asked for the resignation of all the political appointees. Okay. So that's it's not a partisan thing. It's just that's what happens in a presidential transition. Um, so naturally, I had my resignation letter effective noon on inauguration day because okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had come on the first day and I wanted to stay to the last day. Um, and that was the only reason. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, so so when I left, I I knew there were some th- some things that I could likely do. Um, right. I'd been a management consultant before. I had some confidence that I could go back to being a management consulting again, and I enjoyed it. And so I was, I was definitely open to that possibility. But I also knew that if I wanted to try something different, I had to not explore management consulting opportunities until I'd explored less traditional opportunities. Okay. And my framework for that was, um, was pretty simple. I thought, I want to be in a place where the culture has a lot of growth. Mm. Uh, And so if I join, people will not look at me as having taken someone else's opportunity, but rather will look at me as, because you're here, we can now do something different. And the second thing that I thought is, it was important to me that, you know, there was a lot changing in financial services. And I wanted to be uh, at a place where that change was being embraced, not being resisted. Uh, so, you know, you put those two things together. Um, it's not that only fintechs were the option. Um, but if you, but if you then ask, well, who is interested in my expertise, there was a lot of conversations that led, oh, well, you should think about, you know, working in this fintech space. And the honest truth is that the team at QED was already interested in some of these areas that we just talked about and had decided that they wanted to hire someone to help them look at them. Mm. And that decision they made without knowing who I was. I hadn't met them when they made those decisions. And uh, it's actually a piece of advice we often give founders, which is you can't convince anybody of anything. You're just trying to find someone who already thinks like you. And so I got lucky. I walked into the QED offices. I explained what I was thinking about and what I'd done. And they had an immediate positive reaction to say, oh, well, maybe you could help us invest. And that was not, you know, there aren't that many opportunities where people uh, react to, to someone like that. So, um, so I got to know them, I actually forced them to give me a two week unpaid internship. Uh, I said, I, you know, I want to, I want to come and hang out in the office for two weeks before I sign up here. It's a good decision. Yeah. And, uh, and then I started in June of 2017. Wow. So 
you've been there since 2017. I understand you've already made some investments. Yep. I'm curious, either an investment you've made or uh, something else that is in QD's portfolio, what, are, what is something that you're most excited about going forward um, and really changing the fintech landscape? Yeah, there, there's a lot of really exciting, and we've talked about Arachnus, um, but, but I also want to talk about a company called Ocrelis, which actually the first investment I, I made, and there's a project obviously here at, at Wharton um, to, to help them look at, at different strategy issues. So what Ocrelis does, it's really a data extraction and analytics company. So if you think about the underwriting process, Underwriting tends to be pretty automated from the point of data entry. Mm. And um, what a company like Ocrelis can do is it expands the point of automation further down the value chain. So they can automate the pre-underwriting process, the data entry process, not just the underwriting process itself. Um, And because they use, um, you know, data extraction as opposed to data integration, right? So if you think about um, they can take any image and use a combination of human and machine to pull all of the data off that image in context and return it as a clean data file. Now, that's um, they've done really well, uh, in particular in small business lending and some online lending for consumers, but they're only beginning to tap the surface of, of where they could build that. Um, and so they're starting to get into mortgage, right? There's 90, sometimes 200 pages of documentation in a mortgage file. Mm. And that's not all going to get automated and digitized, right? Income tax uh, verification is unfortunately not going to be, you know, a clean data integration the way you can do with bank accounts uh, right. for many days today. And so, you know, they're a really exciting, uh, fast-growing company they uh, have great, great uh, product market fit with their existing customers. And one of the things that's really exciting for me is as they mature from uh, you know, small team to a bigger team, as they raised you know, from the A that we were in to more of a B, which they just raised, um, watching them go through that process of what's the next variation of product market fit? What, how do we sell into banks, not just into online lenders that are culturally more like us? How do we find out, uh, how do we be more solutions oriented? How do we expand the limits of what we can do analytically with this data that we um, gather along with our customers? And it's, it's very fun to watch a company explore new vistas that open up, right? So many small companies are really in that survival mode. How do I get the next customer? How do I get the next round of funding? How do I hire the next engineer? And then to watch a company emerge from really fast growth uh, with strong financial backers and say, okay, strategically, what do we want to do over the next two to three years? Not just to be a successful company, but potentially even a really great company. And it's really fun to watch the team and to get to be part of the boardroom as they make those uh, decisions. Yeah. And just, and just, I'm curious about Ocrelis. Um, what, the, what they're doing is large amounts of screen scraping um, to create that quality of input um, that increases the automation down the chain so that human beings aren't doing that. I'm, I'm assuming the quality of that input at one point could even be better than what you or I would input into that machine or someone who has a bias. Yeah, I think the, the, the first thing just that is they, where they strictly dominate is data completeness. Right. So, um, you know, if you or I were going to do a data entry task, 
we would really try to narrow down the data entry only to the absolute most critical data fields, mm. right? Because you just want to minimize the amount of time that a human is typing into a computer. Right. Um, but because Ocrelis is using automation and then some human quality control, they will take 100% of the data with 99 plus percent accuracy. So even if you still only use a small amount of the data fields in, in the underwriting process, it gives you a much richer place to pull. And one of the things that they're finding is that that richness now is enabling them to do um, what are fundamentally pretty simple but really powerful fraud detection. Yep. So um, here's a, a super simple one. If I'm going to doctor a bank statement, the simplest way to doctor it is just to change the revenue mm-hmm. that the bank statement shows in my monthly paychecks or in my monthly you know, inputs. Of course, yeah. But if I do that and I'm not sophisticated, then the daily balances won't match the sum of the transactions. Yep. And so you'd never catch that if you were a human uh, doing data entry. Mm-hmm. But if you have 100% of the data, well, that's a, just a simple check sum. Yep. Uh, and so it's a great example where, by virtue of their process, even really simple mathematical analysis is the sum of these transactions equal to this thing, mm-hmm. which should be the sum of those transactions, becomes a powerful fraud detection tool. Right. Wow. Look out for Oculus. Yeah. Uh, next unicorn. So I think we have time for one more question. You were telling some of my colleagues at Warden um, – giving them great advice on what it takes to be a venture capitalist. Um, what advice do you have for people and entrepreneurs breaking into the fintech space and or investing in fintech? Yeah, I think the, uh, the thing to really focus on right now is that especially in fintech, things are getting easier and easier to achieve. So one of the cases, and we my partners did a paper at LendIt uh, last year. LendIt is one of the big fintech conferences. And they used the example of Simple. So Simple was kind of the first neobank. It got bought, bought by v- BBVA um, and terrific entrepreneurs behind it. They had to raise you know, tens of millions, maybe $100 million to build all the infrastructure to create a neobank. Okay. Today, you know... You can outsource that. You can, you can build a neobank in a couple of weeks, right? right? Because... The ability to hit uh, a, a sponsoring bank so that you can actually hold those deposits with FDIC insurance. Mm-hmm. The ability to hit the payment system. The ability to uh, take the wireframes or the drawings that you or I might do and actually instantiate them in in code on an iPhone. Uh, all those things have been transformed. Now, what that means from an investment perspective or from an entrepreneurial perspective is that you have to be much more confident that what you're doing is something difficult or something truly different mm-hmm. um, because the simple fact that you've been able to achieve you know, a great user experience on your iPhone for banking is no longer enough to make you a great company. Yep. And so we find that one of the places we're most excited are things that we call vertical banks. So stitching together a set of financial services that are tailored for a particular use case. One of our favorite companies is a company called TrueLink. They have tailored financial services for seniors with cognitive decline. 
Wow. And it's a really challenging thing. It's a big market. There's 11 people with you know, dementia or Alzheimer's. And if you have that problem, you need the ability to preemptively prevent fraud from 100 miles away or 1,000 miles away. Let's say you're the adult child of mm. a person with Alzheimer's. And so TrueLink built the functionality for a payment card that allows someone far away to control it and to say, actually, only this amount can be spent at this store in this time period. Right. Now, that's a, it's an amazing uh, breakthrough. It was difficult to do. Um, and you know, their, N, their NPS, their net promoter score, is 89 or 90 because this is a transformative product for that population. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, another company that I'm sorry, focuses, there's, yeah, there's tons of other applications for that. I mean, I can see yeah. it being used for parents yeah. and kids for- Absolutely, uh, and, and they, they've started even you know, addicts in recovery. So right. someone can say, I'm clean now, I want to create these controls for myself. I want to invite my sponsor in. Mm-hmm. If I try to swipe my card after 9 p.m. at a gas station, I want a text message to go to my sponsor. Yep. Right. So there's a huge range of things that they can do, um, and and so we look at that as people who've really come to understand their customer and have built something that really matches those customer needs or combines things to match those customer needs. And um, oftentimes, when you do that, you will drastically increase your degree of difficulty. But because you drastically increase your degree of difficulty, when you deliver that product, you really increase the product market fit. Once you've got it um, and you build that customer relationship, the trust goes through the roof. And now all of a sudden you can grow virally. You can grow through word of mouth. You can grow through different channels than just you know standard Facebook or, or Google marketing. And so we like to look for people who are really understanding things deeply, not just moving quickly. Right. And... J- Sorry, I have one more question, actually. Please. Uh, we were talking a bit about valuations in FinTech. Yeah. You talked about how competitive it is now in the venture capital space. You almost got to sell your capital. That's right. Um, have, there's not almost. Really, you have to. It is a sales job. So how, how do you compete at QED? How do you get entrepreneurs who have a ton of demand to get into their cap table yeah. to, you know, QED, we need you to be part of our growth and future going forward? Yeah, so... Um, we really try hard to add value. We we really do believe that our capital is a, is the commodity, and our company is the value. And so we try really hard to to convince people. That means that you know we try to give people advice when we're turning them down. We try to be really explicit. You know, oftentimes I'll end first calls you know by saying I really don't think we're the right capital for you, but here's how I'd improve your pitch or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we stay close to companies even after we pass on them. Right. Um, we'll say, you know, what can I do to help? And, and, and to mean it sincerely, I often give, especially when I'm talking to companies that are too early for us, right? Cause we like to be in that kind of late seed series a uh, okay. space. Um, that's mostly where we, we invest. We occasionally do formation stage when we have a high conviction on a team and an idea will actually go in pre-seed. Um, but mostly we're, we're kind of late seed series A. And so if I'm talking to someone earlier than that, I say, if you are eventually going to take my money, you should do so because you think I'm going to give you good advice. Well, you know, it's going to take you six months or a year to get into the sweet spot for my investing zone. So why don't you start taking advantage now? Ping me in a month. Ask me your hardest question. If I'm responsive or if I give you good advice, then probably 
you should take my money a year from now. If I'm not responsive, I don't give you good advice, then I've just saved you a lot of time. You don't need to pitch me a year from now because you will have learned, you know, on a random Tuesday in September that I'm actually not the right partner for you. I'm not as excited about your idea as you are. Mm. Um, so even if you're too early, uh, we really try to add value where we can. And obviously, you know, I'm lucky enough to join a firm where they've been doing this for a decade, where the history of Capital One and the history of our successes in, in fintech investment ride behind us. So I have the benefit that I get to um, just try to carry that brand forward rather than build that brand myself. I don't have to build a 10-year track record when I don't, in fact, have one. I can say, you've seen this track record, and you can interact with me now, and if you think that I'm a true representative of that track record or that the kind of behavior that could create that track record with you, then maybe I'm the partner for you. Um, so it, it's been really great to, to join a company with that strong a brand, and we get a ton of inbound. We try to do outbound too. Um, and then as a partner myself, I see it as my job to carry that brand and that reputation forward and try and live up to the values that, that we have lived up to. So that, that's how we do it. We just try to add value. Yeah. Well, Mai, this has been fantastic. Thank you for coming to Warden today. Thank you for telling us about the regulatory landscape, QED, um, and your background. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Great.